Hello, and welcome back to the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you enjoy the series, you can subscribe on iTunes, and you can follow us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. If you have any questions or corrections, you can also email me anytime at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. So this may be a pretty long episode because I want to go ahead and get us close to finishing the history of ancient classical and Hellenistic Greece. And once we finish that this summer, I hope to do episodes that will cover ancient Rome to the decline and fall, and then uh, a good beginning of early Middle Age history for Europe. So in this episode, I want to try and cover the um, situation after the fall of Athens. If you remember from the last episode, we cut, we finished with the Great Peloponnesian War, and Athens was surrounded by Sparta. Their navy was destroyed, and they surrender, and they have to take down their walls. Their government is suppressed, etc. And so today we want to talk about what was going on in the uh, 5th century and 4th century BCE in Greece. We're going to talk about the hegemony of Sparta, the hegemony of Thebes that comes later, and the Second Athenian Empire, and basically the great uh, century-long, two-century-long struggle uh, for leadership and dominance of Greek um, politics. After that, I'm going to get into the 5th century and 4th century culture of classical Greece, which is marked by a tension between the creative impulses of the individual versus the demands of society and the community of the city-state, and also the knowledge of various city-states that it is great to be very dominant, but there is everyone is getting this understanding that as a city-state becomes so dominant, it kind of breeds its own resentment in outside forces to bring around its own destruction. And so there is this kind of discomfort going on. And then we will end with that and uh, the crisis of the polis. We will go through the major philosophers of the 4th century, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And I will probably finish the episode there, so let's get started. After the defeat and surrender of Athens, there, there was no real domination by any one given city-state. The 4th century BCE was marked by a struggle between Sparta, Athens, and Thebes for military, political, government domination. This sets the stage for the Macedonian conquest of all of them. Sparta received funding during the Great Peloponnesian War from Persia uh, to help it uh, defeat them, and they paid the debt by handing over the Ionian Greek city-states of Asia Minor back to the Persians. They totally turned their back on those Greek city-states on the other side of the Aegean Sea. They reneged on their promise to free the Greeks of the Delian League and simply took over the Athenian dominant role. Lysander, the leader of Sparta, installed um, a board of ten local oligarchs loyal to him, along with a Spartan garrison. Tribute was roughly the same as it had been demanded by Athens, uh, the tribute that these uh, Aegean city-states had to pay up to Sparta. 
So not a huge, you know, change of situation for these, you know, minor city-states in the GNC. And you're going to see the same resentment being bred against these new imperial uh, overseers. The limited uh, population of Sparta, the helot threat, the, the helots, if you remember, those are the, the state-owned slaves uh, population of Sparta. Uh, there were, all, there were um, continuous uprisings, rebellions of these uh, slave populations, and it took a lot of the Spartan manpower and resources to just keep them in the condition of slavery. So the limited population of Sparta, the constant threat of helot revolts, and the conservative traditionalism of the Spartan culture made it a really bad candidate for trying to be in charge of a diverse maritime Greek empire. The Spartan oligarchy in Athens that was put in place after Athens surrendered was so abusive it was dubbed the Thirty Tyrants. Uh, democratic exiles left Athens for Thebes and Corinth and they started to engage in negotiations and lobbying them uh, to support a rebellion and they raised an army to challenge the Spartan installed oligarchy. Lysander uh, dies and Sparta's new king Pausanias, uh, excuse me if I'm not getting the pronunciations right on this, but Sparta's new king Pausanias arranged a peaceful settlement and restored democracy with Athenian foreign policy still controlled by Sparta but Athens gets more kind of domestic independence. In Persia in 405, King Darius II dies. He's succeeded by, by Art Artaxerxes II, uh, but his younger brother Cyrus is, gets help from Sparta and a mercenary army to contest the throne. The Greeks marched to Mesopotamia, as far as Mesopotamia, and defeated the Persians in 401 BCE, but Cyrus was killed in battle. So the, the younger brother fails at this attempt. The Greeks of Asia Minor supported Cyrus, but now are afraid of Persian revenge, and Spartans agreed to go ahead and give them support. In 396 BCE, uh, Agislaus, uh, the new king who led until his death in Sparta in 360, uh, comes to the throne, and he is constantly advocating a very aggressive policies against Persia. A Persia lobbied Greek factions to oppose Sparta, so they're trying. They're getting nervous by they, the Persians really get nervous by any um, city state that becomes too uh, powerful, that becomes too successful at consolidating, you know, the the communities of Greece, and so Persia lobbied Greek factions to oppose uh, Spartan hegemony. So in 395, Thebes made an alliance with Corinth and Argos and a resurgent Athens. And this results in what's known as the Corinthian War of 395 to 387. And that puts an end to Sparta's aggression in Asia. So Persia is feeling better about this. In 394, a Persian fleet destroys the Spartan maritime empire while Athenians rebuilt their walls, grew their navy, and retook some Aegean city-states. This all ended with the Greek city-states accepting a peace that was arbitrated and dictated by the Persian king. Persia, going down uh, the years, Persia becomes concerned with the growing Athens and then goes back and puts Sparta in charge of Greek foreign policy and domestic policy. 
Uh, Sparta took Thebes, uh, basically marched in and conquered Thebes without warning in 382, and attempted to do the same thing with Athens, and which goes on to persuading uh, the two to form a an alliance together to check this Spartan power. In 371, Thebes defeated Sparta at Lu Lucretia and encouraged the Arcadian cities of the central Peloponnesus to form a league. They freed the helot slaves. They deprived Sparta of their farmland and workers, and they basically surrounded Sparta with a hostile uh, city-state neighbors. And so Sparta gets kind of very, you know, in terms of resources, manpower, uh, land, etc. They are basically sewn in, and their their ability to be a dominant power is removed. And the aggression of Sparta is destroyed uh, with that final conflict, and Sparta is no longer a dominant power. We're going to move on and talk to uh, the later period of the known as the hegemony of Thebes. Thebes had a democratic constitution. They're not oligarchical, they're not as monarchical. They have a democratic constitution. They controlled Bo uh, Boetia and had two excellent generals. A general Epim Epimenides made Thebes the controlling power over Greece, north of Athens, and the Corinthian Gulf, which provoked resistance. By th this, and th this story, uh, I'll pause here, this story of these Greek city-states uh, constantly being at a very nervous, in a nervous relationship with each other, always being tensions and political uh, conflicts over resources or military issues, this, it sounds a lot like a microcosm for me of the history of Europe in general, of, of having a multipolar kind of situation where you have a lot of major powers that are bordering each other. And so uh, when we fast when we get into uh, the later middle ages, the uh, the the renaissance period, the uh, industrial era, this constant um, shifting diplomatic issues, shifting military issues is going to be a recurring theme. And so it's no it's no surprise that we're seeing this at the beginning it, with talking about these city-states of Greece. Uh, they, are, they are isolated from each other geographically with the mountainous terrain, uh, but they're constantly just going after each other. And so this is going to be a recurring theme throughout our entire series here of European history. But any, anyway, by 362, Thebes fought a Peloponnesian co coalition as well as try, tried to fight off Athens, uh, Thebes was victorious, but uh, the, their famous general Epimenides died along with the uh, Theban ability to be dominant. Athens um, starts to resurge after this, and Athens has, forms a second confederation with those Aegean city-states. So this is kind of a Delian League 2.0, if you will, to try and check Spartan power. And that makes sense because these uh, Aegean city-states have had this experience of, of seeing what the real alternative was. The alternative wasn't that they would be truly free and independent and, and have security and have uh, self-determination they understand now through this painful experience that their options are either to take the leadership of Athens or take the leadership of Sparta, or if neither of those, simply be on their own with the constant threat of being dominated by the Persians. 
And so after this experience of understanding that they are not going to have independence, they are going to be dominated by Sparta and experiencing the harsh brutality uh, and lack of cosmopolitan kind of attitude from Sparta, that they are now more willing to accept an Athenian-led coalition or a confederation, we're going to say. But they're going to try and argue for it to not be as abusive as Athens had been in the Delian League, where they are forced to stay, they're forced to pay tribute, and they're attacked if they uh, complain too much or if they try to withdraw. So Athens tries to form this second confederation. The new arrangement forbade the Delian abuses of the former uh, arrangement, alliance slash empire, but Athens starts abusing its power anyway. With the collapse of Sparta and Thebes and the non-aggression of Persia, the Aegean city-states again saw no reason to stay in the alliance. They revolted, and Athens gave up. After 200 years of almost constant warfare, the Greeks were back at that same disorganized situation that existed before the various leagues had begun. And so I don't want to make oversimplified here, but it's just my thought on this is it all sounds like a big, massive waste of time, resources, energy, and opportunity. It's exactly why an outsider from Greece is going to take advantage of the moment, take advantage of the opportunity, and is going to succeed at conquering all of them. And I'll go ahead and spoil it. It's, the, it is Alex, it's going to be uh, King Philip first, and then Alexander the Great. They're going to be conquered by the Macedonians to the north. Moving on to a new topic. Uh, now we're going to talk about basically kind of the cultural issues. What Instead of just talking about these you know, macro political issues and the, that brief discussion of the, who was in the dominant power, when, and for how long, and how long did it go away, now I want to talk about the culture that was going on in the Greek period that we refer to as the classical period. And we'll break it up into two big kind of pieces. First, the 5th century BCE, and then the 4th century BCE. And classical Greece is going to come to an end with the Greek city-states being conquered, like I said, with Macedonia. So, the 5th century. Let's rewind now and look at what was going on in Greece in terms of culture in the time period. It is referred to as the classical period between the Persian War, uh, so we have the Persian War, and the Macedonian conquest. Because of an intense flourishing of cultural creativity, it is perhaps surprising to many that this period of constant warfare was also a period of unmatched creative uh, innovation. The tension that existed between creativity and conflict, between the pride of victory and the back, back of your brain knowledge that overaggression brings about its own destruction, is perhaps the essential ingredient for all the creativity that followed. Tension is kind of pushing these creative responses. Another tension to consider would also be between the individual's ambitious aspirations and the limits put on him by fellow citizens. In a way, though, those two tensions are kind of the same, right? You have the ambitions of a smaller part and the pride of the abilities of a smaller part being held in check and made nervous and being threatened by the demands of a larger group or a larger part. So these two tensions of 
you know, one city-state versus the other community of city-states, and then the ambitions and pride of an individual versus the customs and expectations of the city-state polis community. So some of the cultural things going on here, let's talk about literature. Uh, the Attic tragedy becomes uh, very popular. It starts, it develops in the fifth century. And it begins in Athens. Athens begins this cultural religious event to honor the god Dionysus, in which poets would have a competition by composing three-act tragedies. Uh, they were most often very solemn discussions about religion, politics, ethics, morality, basically the problems that are starting to face the poliases. Uh, Aeschylus and Sophocles are famous uh, contributors to these Attic tragedies. Uh, after that period, we see the beginning of uh, the development of what we uh, literature experts refer to as the old comedy period. It began in the 5th century BCE with masters such as Aristophanes, Cratinus, Eupolis, and it involved uh, a very biting, cutting, uh, derogatory satire of political issues and leaders such as Pericles, Cleon, Socrates, and Euripides. Architecture and sculpture. Uh, from 448 BCE, Pericles led a building program on the Acropolis of Athens, and the main impulse was to basically show the superiority of Athens, the creative superiority, the political superiority, but also the intellectual, uh, artistic superiority of the Athenian model of city-state. It was paid for by the Athenian Empire, by the Delian League. They were forced to pay for it, and uh, we talked about that earlier, about some of the resentment that that bred, that these payments that the uh, Delian city-states had to pay up were not being used for defensive purposes, and they were demanded even when there was no military threat. So this is what those forced payments end up paying for, these great uh, architectural achievements, uh, artistic, sculptural uh, uh, creations. So, uh, thanks to the Delian League, uh, their uh, resources. Temples were constructed in Athens to honor the gods. Uh, gateways were erected, and etc. And this was all in an effort to emphasize the civilizational greatness of Athens over other aspects of the city-state. Philosophy. Uh, okay, so Thales uh, was a uh, philosopher. He was kind of a more of a natural philosopher. He made inquiry into the nature of the cosmos and the world. Our Parmenides and Zeno, they argued that change, the, the, the nature of change itself was an illusion, that change is not real, that the fundamental nature of the universe is, is uh, fixed and not, it doesn't uh, evolve or develop. Empedocles speculated about four basic elements of nature, fire, water, earth, and air, and also thought that reality was permanent and unchanging, and that our perception that some things are changing is an illusion that is uh, just part of our, our mind, our perception. His thought is considered to be a precursor to the atomism of Leucippus and Democritus, uh, and that is the theory that the world consists of innumerable, infinite number of tiny, solid, indivisible, unchangeable particles or atoms. Anaxagoras uh, is another thinker who spoke also of tiny particles called seeds. He called them seeds uh, that were put together by uh, the mind. And so there's kind of this blur between you know, objective reality and human subjective perception. And it suggests a dichotomy between uh, matter and mind. 
However, it's critical to point out that these questions were not of any interest to the vast majority of Greek society. And so what we in 2017 and, uh, and, beyond, and you know, earlier, uh, what we pull out of Greek history and find so fascinating is uh, not necessarily telling us what the Greek, the Greek history itself, the history of the people of classical Greece at the time. They were not interested in almost any of this. Uh, we're interested in it today because we know that the foundation of scientific learning, uh, learning of the natural world, mathematics, medicine, geometry, etc., uh, that these uh, thinkers laid for future humanity. But anyway, so these, these questions, this activity is not of interest to the vast majority of Greek society. And most were suspicious of them. And that stands in great contrast to the sophists of the 5th century, a group of professional teachers who traveled around teaching much more practical things such as rhetoric, dialectic, and argumentation. This was critical because open debate and persuasion were very operative functions in government decision-making for Athens and other democratic uh, city-states, uh, or even city-states that weren't democratic, but that did allow for you know, uh, open discussion, at least, and open airing of opinions and, and uh, priorities. So uh, the, they, these sophists, these professional teachers who taught for pay, they helped to identify the problem of human social life in the polis between human nature and custom and the laws of the community. Some of the sophists argued that the law was united with nature. There was no difference. There was no contradiction. Some sophists argued either that nature and law weren't always in accord or even some extreme ones that the law was actually against human nature and that the whole purpose of the law was to trick uh, the strong uh, trick for the strong to control the weak. Although, uh, in, in my view, you could argue that the law is, could also be used in the opposite way as well, a method by which you know, weaker members of our species have erected in civilization to uh, encourage or influence and control the strong against their nature to be dominant mammals. So uh, we have all these different perspectives, basically, on... Is there a difference between human nature and human law? Is there a, is there a contradiction between them? Uh, another thinker, uh, Critias, uh, was an Athenian oligarch, and he was an extreme sophist, and he proposed that the gods themselves were a trick and and basically bogus, and he and that they were invented to keep people from doing what they actually wanted to do. And this attacked the entire foundation of the polis and paved the way for the responses of Plato and Aristotle in the 4th century. In terms of history, a new topic now, uh, history, Herodotus, of course, the famous Greek, he gave the first literature in the genre of history with the account of the Persian War. It directly attempts to draw lessons and human instruction from the conflict it celebrates the central role of human intelligence, particularly with Miltiades at Marathon and Themistocles at the Battle of Salamis, that naval battle of the uh, Persian War. He also honored institutions of the polis he, and, he, and the customary rule of law. He was a, a community-minded person over the individual uh, to that extent. 
Another historian, Thucydides, he wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, as I mentioned when we talked about that in the last episode. Uh, Thucydides, he was kind of uh, kicked out. He was exiled for doing what, they, what people thought was a bad job. And so he had this time, this opportunity to uh, go into trying to document what was going on. So he writes the history of the Peloponnesian War and was far more influenced by secular, human-centered rationalism of the sophists. His work made great pains to achieve factual accuracy and also looked for patterns of human behavior to allow for predicting likely future events or outcomes. So he was trying to push this view that history can be useful for society. If people can know history, they can use it to avoid mistakes in the future and to predict problems that would likely come by various uh, social civic choices. Thucydides, he ultimately focused on politics, and he dealt heavily and directly with the central tension of classical Greece, the opposing models of government between the city-states and society offered by the dominant uh, city-states of oligarchical tyranny in Sparta versus democratic institutions in Athens and others. So that's uh, classical Greece in the 5th century. Um, so moving in right into the 4th century, classical Greece, this is part 2. The end of the great Peloponnesian War and, and the 4th century, they mark a crisis of the polis as the unit of civilization. Uh, what is the role of the polis? It, does the polis is the polis legitimate? Uh, people, uh, Greek humans are starting to kind of uh, question what uh, has not been questioned so much before. And so the Greeks at this time, they're not aware uh, that their way of life as city-states was about to come to an end uh, very soon. But they did know that they were living in troubled times. Class conflict was rising. There was reduced population in the city-states. There was a rise in professional armies. There were all, and this all pushed uh, Greek thinkers to respond in very different ways, either with nostalgia uh, looking back at the past, uh, saying we should go back and do things like it was imagined they had been done. Uh, some Greek thinkers respond with despair, some respond with new solutions, and some respond by simply simple apathy or indifference and just trying to get some distraction and talk about other topics besides fundamental problems with the city-states. These various problems and the various responses to those problems are all reflected in the literature, philosophy, and the art of the fourth century. Middle comedy emerges with a focus on more of a focus on everyday life. It's not as focused on that, you know, biting, cutting, derogatory satire of, of political issues and political leaders. The middle comedy period, it's, it's focusing on just everyday life, imaginary plots, domestic satire, kind of making fun of home life with a diminished role for the chorus in the literature of middle comedy. And that is significant because the chorus often represented the polis. And so we're seeing this reduced focus, this reduced role for artistic discussion of polis, city-states and their problems. Those trends deepened into the new comedy period with gentle satire and very quaint love, tragic comedies and the like. And tragedy becomes a very uh, a much less common genre 
And that makes a lot of sense if you think about it, considering that when the huge crises are facing the polis, economic, military, political conflicts, social, economic, class conflicts are happening every day, people don't want literature and entertainment and, and uh, performances that are dealing with that. They want a break. Uh, and so the arts do retreat from that a bit. In terms of sculpture, in the 4th century they followed a similar pattern, which I think is very interesting. They follow a similar pattern to the development of literature. And the, the, the practice, of the art, artistry of sculpture moves away from these grand ideals that represent you know, fundamental values of the city-state, such as you know, courage or honor or pride or dominance or whatever, or military success. And they start to focus more on the individual without having a problem in the flawed subjects of art. And so we can do this. I'll put up on uh, our Facebook page, the European History Podcast. I'm going to put up uh, a couple of pictures of these two kinds of sculptural periods. One showing, uh, we will be, so you'll be able to compare, uh, number one, is be the statue of the striding god from Artemisium, which was uh, from 460, to the statue of Hermes uh, of Praxiteles in 340 BCE. And I'll post, I'll post a picture of each of these statues on the Facebook page so you can kind of get a visual of the changing cultural trends between the 5th century and the 4th century of classical Greece. We're getting close. I've just got three more topics. I want to talk about the uh, three uh, main philosophers of classical Greece that we, we have got to give some time to. First, uh, you could argue he's the father of philosophy, Socrates. He lived from 469 to 399 BCE. He wrote nothing down, and so most of what we know uh, comes from his uh, pupils, Plato and Xenophon. Socrates believed reason could discover the truth and knowledge about human society. So he, he says reason is the answer to figure things out. His method was to engage in questioning and dialogue with Greeks who were thought to be experts, to be the most knowledgeable people in the community, either politicians or craftspeople or poetic uh, artists or sculptors, uh, uh, sculptors, etc. With each person questioned, though, it becomes apparent in his dialogues that uh, none of them had any knowledge of fundamental principles of human behavior. And this bred suspicion that Socrates was undermining the values of the polis because he's kind of undermining all of these leading Greeks. He was openly contemptuous of democracy, and he insisted on the primacy of individualism in pursuing philosophy, even against the wishes or the good of the community. But paradoxically, he argued that the laws of the polis had legitimate claims on the citizen. I think he was kind of maybe he was kind of arguing that the what should the claims be, and that's kind of why he didn't necessarily uh, he he wanted to allow some kind of individualism to push the city state to come up with the right claims to put on the citizens of the city state. In 399 BCE, Socrates was condemned to death on charges that he was bringing new gods into the city and corrupting the youth. His criticism of democracy brought suspicion, along with the fact that Critias and Charmides, uh, who are members of the Spartan insult, installed 30 tyrants, and the traitor Alcibiades uh, were big followers of him. And so 
pe- these people who loved him is, are basically not doing him any favors. It's not a good reputation for him to have. After Socrates comes the rise of the Cynic, uh, cynical school. It was a branch of Socratic thought that was led by Antisthenes and Diognes. They advocated a simple life of fulfilling human needs in the most direct way. They they they're called cynical because they they openly ridiculed all religious practices and they ridiculed really basic kind of social understandings of decency. Uh, they contradicted Socrates in the way that, that by teaching that virtue does not lay in knowledge. Socrates said, you know, reason is the key to get knowledge. But the cynics they argue that wisdom and happiness comes from simply pursuing. A proper style of life. It's about actions. It's about it's about behaviors and habits not, that don't necessarily come from engaging in contemplative philosophy or learning. The cynics they also completely reject the concept of the polis as a legit or natural unit of civilization, and they establish the concept of the cosmo uh, cosmopolitan. I can't pronounce it that way, but we know as cosmopolitan. They establish this uh, outlook on human life and society as being cosmopolitan, or basically it's Greek for a citizen of the world. So it's like, I'm not a, I'm not a citizen of Athens, and, and my fiercest loyalty is to this city-state. It's, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a citizen of the you know, social world, the human social world. So they, they introduce cosmopolitan um, social outlook. Their views uh, rejected the past, of course, and tradition, and they actually anticipated, in many ways, the coming of the Hellenistic Age. Uh, next is Plato, from 429. He was born in 429 to 347 BCE. He was a student of Socrates and the first systematic philosopher. He came from a noble family, and he wrote in a dialectical or kind of dialogue style. He initially considered a political career until the 30 tyrant abuses uh, discouraged him, and especially after Socrates was put to death for allegedly being too political. And he tried to establish a perfect city-state in Sicily twice without success. So when he comes back, he established the academy in 386, uh, around the age of 45, and he established the academy to train uh, statesmen and citizens, uh, which lasted until it was shut down by the Roman Emperor Justinian in the 500s uh, CE. So the academy lasts for uh, over a thousand years, uh, or almost a thousand years. He backed uh, the polis and its values of order, uh, harmony, and justice. Uh, Plato believed that it could produce good people if it's a good if the polis was rightly structured it could produce good individuals he argued the polis was in accord with human nature and he agreed that virtue and knowledge were identical so virtue is the same as knowledge if you have virtue then you ha- must have some knowledge and virtue itself is a type of knowledge and also the vice versa knowledge if you have knowledge then by definition you have virtue and so if you have something that you think is knowledge but you have no real moral or ethical virtues, you don't really have knowledge. So he says that they're, they're identical. Plato argues that knowledge, is, uh, knowledge was a body of, of nature, and it had an unchanging wisdom that was open to only a few people, 
with proper training. So in that way, Plato fundamentally is uh, something of an elitist. And not in, in necessarily just as an insult. He, he's an elitist in the sense that he doesn't think that knowledge is, is accessible, uh, that wisdom is accessible to just, you know, everyone. Okay, so it's a, but he thinks that it is open to a few people if they have the proper training, if they have the proper character and intellect to see the reality of these unchanging truths. Plato argued that only those people were qualified to rule, to have government power. Preferring a life of contemplation, uh, he argued that, that they would prefer contemplation, but that they would accept uh, rotating roles as philosopher kings. So in that way, he, he's a monarchist in, in that way. He defined justice such that each person should do only that one thing to which his or her nature is best suited. And that's his definition of justice. Each person doing what they are suited towards doing. To face the crisis of the polis, Plato, and that is really his motivating impulse. That is his motivating ambition uh, in his writing and his uh, educational establishments and his discussions. It, the, polis is in cri the polis is in crisis and it needs a solution. Finding a solution is what's driving uh, Plato. So he suggested a moral and political reform. That was his solution. Namely, the destruction of all causes of social strife as in the destruction of private property and the family uh, social structure, and anything that stood between the individual citizen and a total devotion to the polis. For my personal comment, uh, based on my reading of Plato that I've done in uh, grad school and later on rereading some of his stuff, I, I admire Plato uh, very much. Uh, I recognize many insights. He is such a foundational figure of philosophy. He achieved uh, many insights uh, towards human nature and society. Um, I will say also, though, that I, I think he ultimately overestimates uh, that it is possible for a philosopher king to exist. Uh, I.e., what I mean here is that a, a person can achieve and maintain wisdom as he defines it, and at the same time be in possession of and exercise unchecked or unlimited governmental power as a monarch without becoming corrupt. And that's what Plato is suggesting. He's suggesting it's possible for someone to be you know, very knowledgeable, which for him is the same as being virtuous, and being having unlimited power, being a monarchical figure, and I, I don't think that's possible. I say that because I don't, I, I do not personally know of any uh, model that looks like his government suggestion that has existed in human, the human history of any civilization, not just European. And I think my criticism of, of this, the solution or the suggestion is the, the common phrase that power corrupts principle. Power corrupts, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely, uh, the more so when it becomes less limited. And I, I see this even in the most admirable of human leaders that I can think of throughout history. They, they all have these uh, moments and examples where they take decisions or they use methods that are not ethical, are not uh, admirable, and, and therefore they couldn't be a philosopher king at that point. They can be a king, but they can't be the virtuous philosopher that Plato imagines. So, that's my personal thought on it. You can take it uh, for what it's worth. Plato asked uh, questions, though, such as, 
what is a good man? How do you make a person or a man good? And how to institute a system of education to produce those good male citizens. So fundamentally, Plato's central desire is to establish a reparative foundation for the polis. And that is why we have this birth of systematic philosophy. So I find that almost the most interesting thing about Plato and his philosophy is what was the motivation? What was the psychology of Plato? What was he? What drove him to do his great intellectual work? His motive was trying to fix the crisis of the polis. The crisis being uh, political conflicts, reducing population, uh, military issues, uh, threats, resource problems, etc. Finally, we're going to talk about Aristotle. He lived from 384 to 322, so he's the youngest one of these, and he was a student of Plato. He was the son of a court doctor. He lived at the academy until Plato's death and then moved to Platonic colonies in Asia Minor and Mytilene. Aristotle did research in marine biology, with biology playing a significant role in all of his uh, thought or writings. In 342, King Philip of Macedon appointed him as tutor to his son, who would become Alexander the Great. He returned to Athens in 336, founding his own school, their Peripatos, uh, which uh, people who were followers of his method became known as Peripatetics, uh, but his own school, the Peripatos, but uh, left after the death of Alexander. And when Athenians started to rebel against Macedonian rule, he decided that he should get out. His school focused on gathering and analyzing empirical human knowledge from logic to physics, astronomy, biology, ethics, rhetoric, literary criticism, and politics. Every field was organized the same way, beginning with a review of the empirical evidence then he would apply reason to the evidence to try to expose problems, figure out what the problems were between what the gathered supposed uh, evidence was, at which point he would introduce metaphysical principles to remedy the problems. He viewed all subjects as teleological, and I don't want to get into too much philosophy with this because this, this is a history podcast, but I encourage you to look up and look into some of these basic uh, kind of fields of philosophy. But so he introduced these metaphysical. That's kind of uh, that's a that's a branch of philosophy. These metaphysical principles to fix problems, and he viewed all subjects as teleological, and teleology is another branch of philosophy. But it means that he believed that the purposes, theology relates to purpose. He believed that the purposes existed apart from and greater than the will of an individual person. For Plato, the teleology of things was uh, abstract, intangible ideas that existed independently and without a need for the physical nature or experience, human experience. For Aristotle, though, te the teleology of things and of persons existed here in the real world. Aristotle's view of knowledge lay both in reason and experience, and he tried, so he's trying to kind of do two things at once with his philosophy. He emphasized both mind and body. He aimed toward building an ethic of the good life, which includes both reflective contemplation, moderate wealth, comfort, and pleasure. 
Aristotle accepted also that the polis was in tune with human nature. There wasn't a contradiction. And he argued that the teleology of all things is one of development from matter to form, implying that since the polis exists, it's real, it's here, we can see it, and was created by people, human society, and we know that, the fact that it exists was kind of a self-evidently the conclusive argument that the polis was natural to man. I mean, man has made it, and so it's natural. Aristotle was less focused on trying to create a utopian state like Plato and the philosopher king, but rather on the best state that was actually possible. And I will say I find this point of view kind of more useful, more persuasive, more interesting, uh, but was actually possible uh, with the central quality being moderation, kind of being in the middle, with power held by the middle class rather than the rich or the poor. Because of the middle class having moderate wealth, it was free, in Aristotle's view, of the arrogance of the rich, but also free of the desperate malice or selfishness of the poor. The practical achievability and natural stability coming from a state ruled by a middle class under a central virtue of moderation, in Aristotle's view, was the best state. So he's saying we don't need a, a utopia, we can't have a utopia, we don't need a philosopher king. He's saying... Uh, the best kind of government or society we can have is one that's ruled by people who have moderate wealth and are also have the highest virtue as being moderation, not being extreme about anything. So he says that's the best state. And it's interesting to consider whether Plato's utopian republic could be argued even as a utopia if we come from Aristotle's perspective, we can kind of criticize this idea of a utopian republic, about whether it can be utopian anyway. As if this republic, like as I mentioned before, if it cannot be argued that a human society should actually work towards it, or whether they could get, get it into reality with any success, can something be called a perfect solution if it can't be a solution at all, if it's totally unattainable? Is it a solution? So this is kind of the Greek philosophy that's going on here. I don't want to go too long on this with philosophy, but um, this is what's being discussed, these ideas, these values, the principles. And that's what Aristotle and Plato and Socrates are doing. They're asking, like, what are we doing here, and who are we, and how do we fix this problem with the polis? And is the polis natural? Is it a good thing? And if it is good... What, what can make it better? What could fix it? Why is it having problems? So this is what's going on with these fundamental powerhouse Greek philosophers. Anyway, while uh, back to Aristotle, with, uh, with, while a contemporary like Isocrates urged sole focus on economic prosperity and military conquest, so Isocrates is a very practical guy. We can relate with Isocrates, I'm sure. He says, like, I know what our problems are. We don't have money. And to get money, we need to conquer more territory. So he's very practical. He said, that's the problem with the polis. That's why we're all upset. So Isocrates urges the sole focus on economic prosperity and military conquest. And Plato urged a creation of utopian communities. And he's focusing on you know, being creating good people, moral, ethical citizens. Aristotle is in the middle, and he mixed and recognized the importance of both perspectives. 
and urged them to be brought together under the control of the middle class with the central virtue of moderation. So that's what makes Aristotle really unique. He, he stands in the middle between Plato's point of view and Isocrates, and he argues for the middle to be in charge, the middle class, with the highest virtue being moderation, being in the middle, not being extreme. So it all kind of fits together very well. The great irony to close up this episode with these philosophers, the great irony is that these world-famous philosophers and these intellectual efforts to defend the polis and their attempts to provide solutions to the various crises that the city-states were facing, these strong efforts all came right before the city-states are all conquered. That's our discussion of classical Greece, uh, the 5th century, the 4th century, Thank you for listening. In our next episode, I'll talk about the conquering of the city-states by Philip of Macedon and later Alexander the Great and the Hellenistic Empire. And we will finish with the history of Greece and we'll move right on to Rome. This is the European History Podcast. Welcome back. If you like us, you can subscribe on uh, iTunes. You can like us on Facebook, the European History Podcast. I'll see you soon. My name is Daniel.